Welcome to Probably Science. We're back from Portland, but we're still on the road. Oh, yeah. This is our first uh, in-town road episode in quite a while, I think. Yeah. I'm Matt Kirshen. That was Andy Wood. Yep. We are in a bit of LA that we've been to before for Probably Science, although neither of us realized that at the time. This is the craziest... You You gave me directions, or you gave me the address, and as I was pulling up, I was like, fuck... Matt copied and pasted the wrong address from his contact list because I'm at Todd Glass's house. God damn it. How, how much farther do I have to drive now? Yeah. And it then, turns out our guest, uh, our guest today lives next door to Todd and didn't realize. next door to Todd Glass. <laughs> so, Todd, Todd is on the road. Otherwise, we would have dragged him into this show. Uh, but we have a fantastic guest, a uh, friend, um, uh, software engineer, someone who works at Google, someone who is part of our occasional trivia team. <laughs> Uh, and Mr. John Eric Hoffman. Hello, all. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for letting us join you. I no, absolutely. It's my pleasure. You've just moved place. into this house, and now we have to introduce you to your new neighbor. <laughs> that, that's actually really hilarious. Like, we've been wondering about them for a while. Like, <laughs> like who's next door? Yeah, no, seriously. Because like, it's a big house, but Todd has various people living from time to time. Right, yeah, no, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to actually meeting him and, and you yeah. know. So you haven't, you haven't minded the occasional late night uh, fire fireside chats over there or anything? You haven't heard any... I mean, you know, we, we tend to have a similar schedule, so okay. like I figure if, you know, he's not annoyed with me, then I'm happy to not be annoyed with him. Perfect. Thing, you know, so. You guys got it. Yeah, I'm glad that we could help introduce <laughs> you, because he, he does have really fun backyard gatherings. Like, he's hired mariachi bands to just appear. In I have heard party. them before, in fact. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. You know, along with the questioning... What the hell is that? Is that a mariachi band? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a mariachi band. He's discussed this on, like, if you check back, um, episode that we did with Todd about, it was about a year and a half ago, yeah. and he mentioned on there that he will occasionally do things like hire a mariachi band to appear at a certain queue, play one song, and then disappear, and then he'll <laughs> deny all knowledge that they showed up. <laughs> or, I think he had his niece visiting one time, and... and they made a bunch of grilled cheese sandwiches and had her dressed up as this chef that said, like, grilled cheese chef on her outfit <laughs> and had her appear from the bushes. So at the, in the middle of the party, when everyone's high, he goes, man, you know what I can really use right now is a grilled cheese sandwich. And like, she just appears <laughs> with a tray full of grilled cheese sandwiches. And he told her ahead of time, no matter, no matter what anyone says to you, don't, t- don't talk. Don't answer any questions. And I'm going to be like, someone put you up to this, right? And you have to just deny, not even deny, <laughs> just say nothing. And then eventually walk back into the bushes. <laughs> Well, honestly, like that—that that explains so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to find out how this. Oh, it's awesome! It's amazing. Uh, other big news that I was waiting until we started recording to bring up. Um, speaking of housing locations, I got a phone call on the drive over here from my landlord, and it looks like the days of Bluebell Ranch are nearing an end. I have fifty-one days to vacate. Oh, really? Uh-oh. Oh, wow! Yeah, after five and a half years, they're they're selling the house, and uh, a chapter of my life ends. It's the longest I lived anywhere, and. Um, yeah, no more recording in the backyard. So no. we're gonna have to squeeze in a few parties there before you get kicked out. Yeah, yeah, I got to figure out and fucking a lot of trash stuff. the place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got to figure out where I'm living. Got to have some parties, uh, bank some episodes, take some uh, pictures. You know, my building has a vacancy right now. I feel like I'm maybe I'm a valley guy now. I don't know. It's uh, you can't like leave the valley. It kind of feels like home now. You know, I want to be close to the places I like. Although I know the east side would be more fun. I'm, I don't know. I got to start looking into it. Also, I know it's going to be just ridiculously expensive because mm-hmm. I haven't even priced out apartments in five years. So, 
listeners to the show, anybody who knows me and thinks you could live with me uh, and has an empty room. <laughs> if you'd like an Andy Wood living in your closet, right? yeah. please contact. Just week to week. Just everyone host. <laughs> We've got enough listeners now in LA that if you we just host. Everyone just takes Andy for like two or three days at a time. It's not that big of an ask. It's, it's really reasonable. You already donate to the show, and we appreciate mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. a better donation would just be to have Andy living on your couch for maybe a couple of days at a time. <laughs> so we'd only record like one episode per person I'm staying with at your house. Yeah. So it's not even that big. It's it's not a big deal. Why are you even making a fuss about it? This is, yeah, has anybody ever crowdfunded their housing situation? I'm I'm sure they have, like... I'm, I'm sure it wasn't called crowdfunding right. back in the day, but millions of people have crowdfunded that. But also... Millions of loser brothers. <laughs> also, I'm sure someone's done, like, that experiment from probably 15 years ago where somebody tried to start with a paperclip and trade up to a house. Yep. Some kind of Craigslist thing or, you know, pre-Web 2.0 internet experiment. Um, so, yeah, honestly, though... I did it the other way around, about, uh, and it was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a giant paperclip, though. So, um, yeah, I'm still kind of processing that. I just found that out 20 minutes ago, and I'm like, oh, my summer's not going to be as carefree as I thought. But um, You never know. It might be even more carefree, right? Yeah. You not might not be burdened down by all of the hassles of modern life. Maybe I fucking get on the road. Maybe I just Kerouac it or uh, into the wild it, you know? But uh, do re- research on which berries are poisonous first. Yeah, that'd be and, good. Yeah. <laughs> It's the Andy Wood version yeah. of the wild. So the long where you live, yeah. A lot of, a lot of googling. <laughs> yeah, I want a smartphone. I'm in the wild and a charger. Um, so uh, we got we got you on because well, what's your background? What was your degree actually in? Uh, I have a bachelor's of science in cognitive science and computer science from Carnegie Mellon. Okay, go fight fighting tartans. Fighting tartans. I didn't know. Uh, I know you're at Carnegie Mellon. Yep. That's where my girlfriend went. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah Hang on, that is the one that's in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's it's really kind of weird. Like, Carnegie Mellon is one of those nexus points. You run into people all the time that have come through there, especially in, you know, uh, the tech industry, you know, show yeah. business. Like, they have a, a really interesting collection of very good schools, right? You know, so their theater department's very good. Obviously, right. their science and, and technology is very good. So, yeah. Who was Mellon? Uh, Andrew Mellon. He was a... I know this. year, yeah. Because he paid for the library at my college. Oh. Yeah. Like, I think he's one of these guys who, like, loads of universities around the world have Mellon buildings. Yep. So... Uh, And there was a scholarship as well. And of course, Dale Carnegie wrote uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes. Yeah. Started a college. <laughs> <Those are> the <laughs> two things. I always All thought, from- growing up, I honestly thought he was one yeah. of the Carnegies. I thought he was related to Andrew and the rest. I, I would happily believe that. There's no reason. I think he even chose the name. I think it's even a pen name. Oh, just is it? to sound more, yeah, to make more friends and influence more people. But Andrew uh, Mellon, American banker, businessman, industrialist, philanthropist, art collector. Great mustache on that guy. He has exactly the kind of mustache you would expect from someone who has buildings named after him <laughs> around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But That's also a, a Pittsburgh native. Okay, okay so, so sorry, we got sidetracked. So oh, no, cognitive no, no. science at Yeah, Carnegie computer Mellon. science. Um, yeah, I went there originally wanting to study artificial intelligence and, and doing that some and, and machine learning. But then I kind of got sidetracked into sort of more concrete, mundane things while I was there. So mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. Ended up, uh, you know, leaving for industry right after bachelor's instead of going and pursuing anything else. And kind of led me to my circuitous route here. Okay. When you, 
when you interview, I nearly said audition to Google. <laughs> That's how much. Uh, you know, little column A, little column yeah. B. Like, did you get, like, do they actually do the sort of classic, uh, like, the questions you, ex- like, how many golf balls could fit in a hippo's mouth or whatever the hell? I did not get many, if any, of those questions. Um, I did get a bunch of questions that were interesting, like, brain questions like like thought you know like brain puzzlers but they are all related to um you know computation and computer science and and stuff like that so most of it was like on on topic i think there's a lot of like uh you know the media tends to overblow the questions that get asked there right but i think that was also a a thing of the i guess i haven't interviewed recently but it felt like that was a first dot-com era kind of questioning. I did have some jobs where ha- that had those questions, and I'm way better at answering those questions than I am at doing the jobs I was interviewing for. <laughs> it's just bad for And that's probably hiring. why they stopped using those yeah, questions. it's just really not a good marker at all for it's what like kind of work It's like some of the SATs are. where you can train for them and actually not be that good at... Right, exactly. I even had to give, I think I already mentioned this on the show in the past, uh, in my last engineering job, which has been 11 years ago now, at some point I had to be involved in an interview process with somebody and I was so worried that that person was probably more adept at the actual engineering stuff than I was. Like, I'm not going to ask them technical stuff. I'm just going to look up, I'm going to look up brain teasers that I like, like about people wearing white hats with red dots on them or whatever. It's not going to help that person be good at the job, but I can sound smart in the interview when I explain the answer. How many golf balls can fit in a hippo's mouth? I'm going to go with 14. Yeah, you you didn't say what age the hippo is, so that's definitely right. At some point, the hippo transitioned from a number below fourteen. I don't know. I know we have some zoologists who listen to this show. I don't know how big a baby hippo comes out, but if any of you are at a zoo or whatever, uh, maybe we'll we'll ask Amy Parrish if she's she's still allied with a San Diego Zoo and see if (laughs) what age hippo can can fit fourteen golf balls in their mouth. I've I've been willing to bet that maybe. Even a baby hit like a newborn baby hippo, you could cram fifteen golf balls in its mouth. So is a fetal hippo still a hippo? And I'm question. willing to kill. We're not. A hippo. Uh, are we really going to get into this <laughs> debate? It, listen, at, guys. At, at, at how many weeks of development is a fetal hippo a hippo? Viable, yes. right? Yeah, I, all I'm asking well, I is passed for a us billboard to on the highway the other day, and <laughs> when a hippo's heart starts beating, you guys, it's just worth <laughs> yeah. considering. Okay, so you interviewed at Google, and yeah. uh, they asked you real job questions. Yeah. And what department did you start in? Um, I've mostly spent my time in search, so, you know, working pretty much everything from infrastructure to interfaces, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, we, we talked a bit before the show, like, we should put a disclaimer here that that John Eric is operating in a personal capacity on this show and not... <laughs> the opinions. Yes, so the views of John Eric do not, in fact, <laughs> reflect the views, opinions of Google, you know, etc. So, but like, what is the secret algorithm? Like, like the. Uh, I mean, honestly, it's actually sitting there. We have it in the vault right next to like uh. the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken recipe and the recipe for Coke. It's written on the back of like a piece of wrapping paper. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. yeah, and you have those ones because someone at KFC and Coke accidentally typed it into the computer once. And yeah, right. Yeah, no, someone entered it in their search history. You suckers. <laughs> Yeah, but 19th century uh, industrialist Horatio Google uh, <laughs> kept copious notes, and those are behind lock and key, as they should be. We have talked about this on the show before, though. Google's like um, Google's voice search does dick all over Siri. So congratulations, you and your colleagues. I, I'm not sure exactly how to parse that sentence. Yeah, like, take all, wait a second. Is that <laughs> like? So, I assume that's good, since you're yeah. congratulating me. But you might be sarcastic. Sounds... I can't tell. You're British. Like <laughs> I've done a. I've tried to search for the same entire 
re- repair place in the valley, mm-hmm. both on Siri and uh, was Van Van Nuys Tire was mm-hmm. the place N U I S, which is a tricky admittedly, thing to get. Admittedly, even without like, an accent, a yeah. weird word. Yeah, yeah, Van Nuys Tires, and I tried it in Siri, and it said it got like Van N I C E, mm-hmm. and then something completely off board. So then I tried spelling it out. And it kind of like did them separate <laughs> letters and didn't connect them, and it was just like I, I was shouting at my phone by the end of it. And then Google Google's search thing got it in one on the app. So well done, your colleagues. Well, great. I'm I'm glad it worked for you. But uh, yeah, it turns out that you know speech recognition and natural language processing is a, a really difficult problem. So I mean, I'm not surprised. Like that, and Van Nuys is like you said a very uh, difficult term, right? Like it's kind of a, a regional word, right? Mm-hmm. Like many people who are out in you know Philadelphia or, or wherever where there's not the Van Nuys you know uh, auto center tire center you know whatever right like that's you know not something they say commonly right like, right and so it's a very ambiguous you know word um, I was just googling real quick because I re- remember we talked about a, a story recently that is related to Google and language processing. Were you involved at all in Parsi McParse face, or can you speak to it? I, I can't speak to it, oh. except to the fact that it, the name is the best name ever. It, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, so, oh, that's <laughs> CNET wants me to know more about Parsi. Yeah. There's currently a cat that is very curious about the mixer. Yeah, and I don't know how this is going to play out, but I'm sure hilariously. This is this cat has two eyes, so this is not um, Admiral. This is Rear Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson. Okay. The the one-eyed cat is Sir Edward Teach, Scourge of the Seven Rooms. Okay. Excellent. (laughs) Um, So we might as well get onto machine learning because this – okay. Last time we were in this house together Mm -hmm. was we were drunk at Thanksgiving and you started telling us about uh, neural networks and machine learning and by the end of it our brains hurt a bit. (laughs) But what is it and how does it work? Well, so uh, neural networks are kind of one of the sort of in vogue uh, machine learning models that are, are, are uh, everyone is currently very excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of have a, a long and interesting history. Like there is this uh, device that was created by someone named Rosenblatt back in the 50s. It was called Perceptron. And what this was was like 400 cameras connected to um, an output and it had like a bunch of like uh, potentiometers and that they could basically, uh, what it was, it was attempt to simulate, um, the biological structure of the brain in a like mechanical electrical form. Right. Mm -hmm. So each of these individual like photoresistors or cameras, they would output a signal showing like how much brightness they were showing. And then, um, you know, that would be propagated over some wires to other, uh, components and they basically adjusted the strength of those connections, kind of like you adjust the strength of connections between neurons as you learn. And uh, they showed that they could do some very basic like image recognition tasks and stuff like that with this very simple setup. Um, and so people were like super, super excited about it and thought like this is great. Like we we have this new technology. This is the basis of consciousness. This will be great. Uh, and then someone named Marvin Minsky, who is commonly called well, one of the fathers of AI, came along and said, like, well, actually, this is kind of, you know, terrible, right? Like, these are the problems they can solve are very, very simple. Mm-hmm. So if you think about machine learning, machine learning is basically trying to 
take a set of observed variables and then categorize uh, you know points based on those variables, right? So imagine that you have uh, you've been fishing a lot, mm-hmm. right? And you kind of have like two variables you're tracking: the size of your fish and the temperature of the water, or whatever. Yeah. And you can kind of plot those like on a graph, right? So, you know, maybe your y-axis is how big the fish is and your x-axis is how warm the water is. And then you make a different mark for like the type of fish that you catch, right? So maybe an x is like a carp and an o is, I don't know, a cod and, and, and whatnot. And uh, so what machine learning wants to do is, or what tries to do, it basically tries to draw lines on that graph and say like, well, on this side of this line or inside this circle or inside this square or whatever, like most of the points in here are cod. So if I see something that falls in there, I'm going to guess it's cod. And okay. so, so uh, you know, what, what Marvin Minsky showed is that like it could only draw very simple shapes mm-hmm. in essence. Uh, it could do basically a straight line. And while that worked for like really simple problems, like eh, it really couldn't scale to do the things that we really want AI to do. Um, so in the 70s, like researching them just kind of died off. And then in the 80s, it kind of picked back up again because someone introduced this new style of uh, neural network, which basically, instead of having just like an input layer and an output layer with connections between them, mm-hmm. it added individual hidden layers between them. And it turns out that gets around this problem of it only being able to draw simple shapes. Hidden layers of... Of, of, of neurons, basically. So um, if you imagine, so you've got like a, a set of inputs, right, uh-huh. in the original system, and they are connected directly to a series of outputs, right? And then the outputs basically like look at all the input and they, you know, it's like an individual neuron firing on each node, right? So um, one camera on the input layer would take its activation, like you know how much light it has, and it would send that to every output node, right? And then each output node would basically look at like all the input it gets, and it would look at the weights of those and either go on or off. So does that make sense? Yeah, so uh, for this analogy, I guess I'm trying to figure out the analog versus digital thing because... Yeah. In the brain, it, do we consider the brain to be an analog machine, or is like if a neuron can be strengthened or weakened, then it probably isn't just on or off. It's like the intensity of the signal coming mm-hmm. through that, right? Or well, I'm, it's, I'm done with this. I, I, <laughs> no, I, I apologize. I'm probably not explaining. No, 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 no. I just, I just uh, don't. Quit. So you, you actually strengthen the connection between individual neurons, right? So like, there's this concept in learning where um, if two neurons fire together, right, and they are connected, they strengthen their connection between them. The, the strengthen meaning that, that a signal so, travel, electrical signal so yeah, travels so electrical more signal with less resistance in, between them? or Yeah, so electrical signal comes in, right? Your basic neuron. So it has, you know, dendrites, which are kind of like inputs, right? And so it receives electrical signals in the form of, you know, um, chemical transmissions to it. And once it reaches a certain level of activation, mm-hmm. right, a neuron will send an electrical signal down its axon, which then connects to other dendrites and other neurons, right? So, um, and you get this kind of like cascading chain of activation from neuron to neuron. Mm-hmm. Um, so each neuron looks at a bunch of like inputs from other neurons, and then it chooses, you know, simply whether to fire or not. 
And that's a bit of a simplification. Like it's actually more like an analog value, mm-hmm. right? But for the most part, because we work with digital computers, we tend to, um, you know, think of it more as a, a, a not necessarily a digital process, right? Like everything yeah. is stored as relative activation levels. We talked about this ages ago. It was a very early episode of the show, one of the first live ones that we did, where I'm trying to remember which professor it was who was on the show, but talking about how at any point in history, our analogy for the brain is the best available technology we have right now. <laughs> so right now, computers are yeah. the most advanced thing we have. So we are like, our oh, brain works like a computer, but it doesn't. Yeah. And before that, I was like, it's like a steam machine. <laughs> right. It's um, a cotton gin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can see that. <laughs> it's possible. Who knows? Um, yeah, so uh, you can imagine that, like, you have, like, a photoreceptor, mm-hmm. right? And it receives some light. And when it receives light, it, you know, uh, activates a signal. And then that, tra- you know, travels down the optic nerve. And it goes into the back of your brain and the visual cortex, right? And then the visual cortex is kind of organized into individual layers. And what happens is the neurons in the, like the first layer, right? Like some of them may activate when there is an edge in your vision, right? And so what those neurons do is they kind of look at the input from the individual photoreceptors. And they say, okay, well, this photoreceptor on this side is very bright. And this photoceptor on this side is very dark, so I must be at an edge. Okay. So then, you know, sort of in that first layer, you get some that are, like, signaling, okay, there's, like, an edge here in your vision. And then others will be, like, the color here in your vision is red. And then others will be, like, there's motion here. And then the next layer takes sort of all of those inputs. So it says, like, all right, here's an edge, here's a color, here's motion. And it comes up with, like, a basic outline of shapes, right? Mm-hmm. And to be clear, this is not necessarily what exactly happens at each a physical, la- a physical level, layer, but yeah, yeah, it, it kind of conceptually is. And then a layer above that might take the individual shapes and say, well, the right eye sees this shape and the right left eye sees this shape and I can kind of match them up so I know approximately how far away that is. Mm-hmm. And then you keep on going up and eventually you get, okay, this is a 3D cube. And you, you know, move up past that and you get, well, that's a, you know, Xbox or, or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so similarly, the interesting thing that kind of occurred in the 80s that re-sparked interest in neural networks is uh, people sort of developed tools and algorithms to add additional layers, you know, to their networks, kind of like the, the visual cortex there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this allowed networks to learn about much more interesting features than just the very simple, you know, division of space. Yeah. Uh, and that was all well and good, except that they were so expensive to run that, like, it just, you know, people could not get enough data and could not, you know, get enough computing power to really train them up to do super interesting things. Like, you could do some, like, basic image recognition stuff with them. Um, there was some work in doing like, uh, you know, uh, speech recognition and, and, uh, language processing and stuff like that. But go ahead. yeah, speech recognition has been around for quite a long time. I, yep. I, I remember there being some software that was supposedly learnt your voice over time from like the late nineties. 
and I'm sure it probably existed at a professional level before that. Yep. Um, the interesting thing about those is they were, you know, th- there was, you know, training involved. And neural networks are not the only machine learning algorithm. They're just kind of the one that's being used to the best effect right now. Um, and so a lot of the earlier, like, speech recognition stuff and sort of, you know, artificial, like, intelligence, machine learning stuff use simpler algorithms that were cheaper to run. Okay. Right? That may not have had as good, you know, results necessarily. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of interest in them from about, like, the 80s to 2000 or so. And then it kind of died off again because people just didn't have – like, they kind of plateaued in what they could do. And then suddenly, you know, 10 years later, you have, you know, Amazon, uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft, who all have phones and, uh, you know, search history and everything that, that people have been doing. So you've got this massive accumulation of data. And you also have these massive data centers that have, you know, tremendous computing power. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly people were able to go back and apply these uh, same algorithms that were kind of developed in the 80s and 90s but with a massive, massive data set. And it turns out that, you know, I mean, there has been a, a, you know, advancement in the algorithms, but, you know, in my opinion, largely the addition of, you know, the extra computing power, which means you can have bigger networks Mm -hmm. and the uh, additional, the massive amount of training data has allowed people to train these models, which are very, very good at what they do. And so like speech recognition uh, is one area that has greatly benefited from it. In the last, I would say, three years, you know, the accuracy of speech recognition has jumped more than it did in the last 25. And it has been purely based on taking massive amounts of data, i.e. people talking to Siri and, and Google and their Microsoft phones mm-hmm. and Cortana, and, uh, you know, applying them to uh, these neural networks. Cool. Does the same go for things like translation as well? Yeah, so, I mean, basically anything that is involved uh, sequential pattern data so far has largely been improved by this. Um, people have started, like, training them even just taking, like, random series of texts. So, like, Shakespeare mm-hmm. or, like, you know, source code to Linux, the Linux kernel. And they will train these networks, uh, versions that are called recurrent networks, so that they not only you know, just sort of take in input and output stuff, but they also have some memory and kind of loop back on each other on themselves. Uh Uh, And they can actually learn the structure of language and output things that, uh, if are not actually language, look awfully close to it, right? Um, So you could train it on, like, the corpus of Shakespeare. You can take all Shakespeare's plays, uh, train up a model with this, and then, you know, you give it a couple words kind of, like, as a seed, and it'll sit there, and it will just churn out text that looks like Shakespeare, Funny, funny you should bring this up because uh, somebody... Is this the script? Yeah, somebody just did this. It came out yesterday. I haven't actually um, seen the video yet, but friend of the show, Humphrey Carr, is one of the actors in it, right? Yeah, yeah. Ars Technica put out a video. We'll link to it over on probablyscience.com. And um, they fed in scripts to a couple hundred um, iconic sci-fi movies. You know, things like uh, Starman. I'm just looking at the S's. Starman, Starship Troopers, Strange Days, Super 8, Supergirl, Surrogates, Tron Legacy, Tron, Terminator 2. Um, And they fed a couple seed uh, pieces of of dialogue. Let's see. Those were... 
I can edit this. One second. Does it actually say what the C dialogue was? Yes. Um, the title, and this came from entrance uh, into a sci-fi filmmaking contest. The title was Sunspring. <clears throat> the dialogue, they said it was, it may never be forgiven, but that is just too bad. The prop in action was a character pulls a book from a shelf, flips through it and puts it back. An optional science idea. In a future with mass unemployment, young people are forced to sell blood. And they just let it crank. And it churned out uh, a script that they made into a nine-minute short film starring Thomas Middleditch. And it Let's says see. at the bottom as well, gave it a cup of really hot tea. Well, that was another prompt. Just, yeah. <laughs> no, that... Yeah. Um, oh, I see. Oh, gave it a cup of really hot tea. The, yeah, I, yeah. I got you. Yeah. They were being cutesy about how it was actually... And um, it's... If you sort of zone out, you're like, oh, yeah, this is this makes sense. But if you're really listening to the words, it's sort of gibberish, but still funny. I mean, they're all kind of like cliche things that in and of themselves are sensical Mm -hmm. sentences. But then it sounds like sounds like how most of Hollywood's right. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They did a great job of shooting it. It it looks pretty amazing. uh, So actually, it's one of the really interesting things about uh, uh, these neural networks. So even just from things like straight text, it can learn patterns like words so yeah so the interesting thing is that you know you you start with letters basically composing of words and you feed it in there and it basically learns the structure of words uh from letters right so it learns that like frequently vowels come after a th or you know if you have a q the next letter is a u and then it will actually learn specifically what are words and what aren't and the more you train them the more data you give them the the bigger the network the more structure they learn. So then they can start to learn things like sentences are composed of a noun and a verb. And these particular words are nouns and, and verbs. And uh, watching that video, it, it seemed to be that it like reached a point where it got a basic understanding of, of language structure. Yeah. And each individual piece of dialogue seemed to make sense, but it wasn't able to learn like the, the larger structure of a movie. Right. 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 And so it, it seemed like it had a lot of trouble, like sort of connecting those individual sentences together. And occasionally you would see things like there'd be one line of dialogue that references, you know, the boy, and then someone would respond about the boy, but there's no explanation of who the boy is or like, right. yeah. you know, more, but no still mention. It's an improvement on the room. Then it's a slight <laughs> improvement on the room. But uh, the interesting thing is, you know, they're just getting sort of better and better. And, you know, I mean, I mean, honestly, you probably write most sports articles, you know, yeah, using like, them. Well, I hope that is something that is even happening now that those sort of content farm websites that just exist mm-hmm. to produce stuff so that they can sell advertising space on it, hmm. that there are now websites that produce sports reports and entertainment write-ups <laughs> and so on. And it, it, it's literally that. There are sports reports websites that have been, have learned how to structure it and they get the raw data of when various goals were scored or whatever mm-hmm. and it all comes together and it just spills out a paragraph that looks like a report of, this, of the match. Yeah. Um, but th- that thing... So if if computers are able to do or if, uh, neural networks programs are able mm-hmm. to do that, can we then sort of learn in reverse maybe or get some idea about how language evolved or how humans learn language? Like the sort of structural, the grammatical rules of language that's... I know I, I don't know much about, but I know there's a lot of debates as to whether is that innate? Is that something that is... Mm-hmm. 
that is th- that we discovered or that we invented. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you can necessarily say much about how the structure of language necessarily developed, whether that was innate or whether it was evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things that it does allow you to do is look at the structure of language in ways that we maybe haven't been able to do before. Um, so there's been you know a couple of experiments where basically they train up like large you know basically train up networks with uh, large amounts of data and sort of what they do is they like take a sentence and they remove a word and then they ask the network to sort of like fill in that word right uh-huh. and that's sort of like the training set they use and uh, then if you look at sort of like the the middle layer the hidden layer which kind of contains uh, like basically all the different features of the word, you can look at it as kind of a vector, right? Like a vector of numbers. So basically a long list of numbers. And the interesting thing is uh, similar number or similar words tend to be grouped close to each other, right? And transformations tend to hold between those. So if you have uh, trained something up and like, uh, you have like the capital, um, let's say you have the word Berlin, right? And you've got this array of numbers that represents Berlin. And then you have some array that represents the the capital of Germany, right? You can like subtract, you can find the, the transformation from the capital of Germany to Berlin, right? If you then take that transformation and apply it to the phrase uh, like the capital of um England, right? Yeah. It'll point to London. Okay. And so you can actually use those word you use those values to try to figure out like the structure and find similar words. How does mean- that happen? How yeah. does it end up being the same the same transformation of the numbers? How does it learn that? So what does it happen? Obviously it can't be purely by chance, but Well no, it's it's because language uh and concepts have structure, right? Like right. so there's a lot of similarities between Berlin and London. They're both large cities, they're both in Europe, they're both capitals, etc., right? And so what these networks do is they um, you know, learn the similarities between things. They learn the the, you know, probabilities that something co-occurs, that something doesn't co-occur, you know, that something's different. And they basically uh, develop uh, a sort of innate understanding of the features that make up something, right? So you you can imagine, like, there's lots and lots of features that represent the concept of Berlin, right? Okay. Um, And you can, like, sort of represent them all as, like, variables. So, like, city, 100%, right? You know, it is 100% a city. You know, another variable might be, I don't know, animal, right? Which would be zero for (laughs) Berlin, and what neural networks do is they kind of automatically determine what those individual features are and how much those particular entities, you know, belong to those features. So would one maybe be like, be like large city and then it would be 60, 70? Yeah, exactly. And there's no actual database where it would have all these sub-concepts these attributes and their values associated with it like that'd be too big no right? it's, it's, it's all not, sort of encoded in the weights of the the network okay but the interesting thing is you can then um you know if you take out these feature vectors right uh you can then use them as input for learning in other types of networks right so um you could you know 
uh, have a network that looked at a picture and, you know, uh, you could have the words that are encoded. Uh, you could like have a description of the picture and you could like basically take the, the features of those individual words and train it so to go from the picture to those feature vectors. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you could also train it to go from those feature vectors to words. And then you can kind of like stitch that together and you can have something that literally goes from, you know, a picture to a description of that. Is there something that people can, is there anything online that does something like that people can look at? I've never heard of a, or seen an example of something like that where you could, can you upload a picture somewhere and then have it come back and say, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any specific like websites you can upload pictures and see descriptions of them, but there's, uh, plenty of research. And if you search for it on, you know, Google news or Bing yeah. or whatever, yeah, I'm I like sure to you Bing. Can. I like to Bing stuff more often. <laughs> yeah. That's my go-to, uh, you're a yeah. binger, man. When you're binging stuff at Google, yeah. when you, uh, <laughs> When you, I will say because Google of the, has its own version I, of Bing, right? I, 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 I do have to say I think more people at Google bought the Microsoft Scroogled T-shirt than anyone else. What is what is that? You never saw the no. the Scroogled campaign? Oh, uh, it was a, a short-lived ad campaign uh, by Microsoft Bing. They really thought like they were, were going to be the Google yeah. Oh my god! Uh, we've talked about this before on the show, though. Bing much better for porn. Oh. It, uh, I don't remember that. Uh, that's, is that something you heard or just found on your own? It, I, I, an ex-girlfriend told me. Okay. Really? Yeah. An ex-girlfriend. <laughs> uh, likely story. She uh, lives in Canada. Don't look her up. <laughs> She's real. You wouldn't know her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know the ex-girlfriend I'm talking about. Um, I d oh, I think I probably do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I probably but, do. Um, but yeah, it, Bing, Bing has video previews that Google likes. Oh. So... Pro tip from uh, <laughs> searching for thing, searching for porny things, and then clicking on video search, and then it has like hover over a little preview. Okay, just makes it easier to know if it's what you're looking for. Yeah, I yeah. feel like if you need to search for porn on the internet, there's plenty of sites that will do that for you. But you mean if you have a specific yeah. set of yeah, you don't like want I to need them to have a very specific name, occupation. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll just need a suggestion from the audience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a, like I'm a real improv fetishist. Like yeah. I really get off on short form improv, <laughs> so I need them. Yes, and yeah. yeah, I yeah I need them. I need to know that they they're taking suggestions from the hat, and they do. <laughs> All right, you're a baker, and uh, yeah, I like porn with callbacks. I like like a three beat Harold uh, yeah. structure. <laughs> my gang bangs, it's and important. in the style of film noir. Mm -hmm. But then it'll change styles every time a bell is rung. Yeah. That's how I like my porn. And Bing, Bing is better for that. Well, maybe Google has made their priority uh, more highbrow things. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you march into the video department tomorrow. Oh, yeah, that a... conversation will go well. <laughs> <laughs> my friend says you are, we are losing out to Microsoft in the porn stakes. <laughs> What if that's all that's keeping Microsoft alive in the search department? What if that's really their only killer app? Like the whole of it's just run by one guy in a Hawaiian shirt with a cigar. <laughs> it's the digital Larry Flint. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I don't know if uh, if this is something that we could. Well, I, oh, yeah, it definitely is. Um, we were talking before. Well, first of all, if I'm sidetracking and we still were, had further to dig into language stuff i didn't want to i mean we we can if you want to but yeah like, yeah uh, i i'm i'm curious if you uh where where you see the future of it going and how how good and how quickly you think it'll be improving 
Well, I mean, like I said, I, I think we've improved more in the last, you know, three years than we have in the last 20. And mm-hmm. I don't really expect that to necessarily change like yeah. that, that speed. Um, I think we're definitely sort of like on the, the upslope or middle of the, the upslope. Um, so, yeah, I, I would expect that. Well, I mean, like, you know, the, the Amazon Alexa is, is a pretty good, you know, voice interface. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I expect those to just get better and to have more options to the point where it is very easy to talk to your computing devices and get back simple answers, mm-hmm. you know, um, or, or even complex answers. You know, I don't necessarily think that they'll be like what people would consider true consciousness mm-hmm. anytime in the near future. But I, I think the, the Star Trek computer is a good target that we're headed for. Yeah. Right. If you think about it, you know, that, that simple action and command interface that has a lot of contextual understanding, uh, that is highly accurate. Here's my problem with the Star Trek computer, right? How did it not learn after months and months how Picard wanted his tea? Uh, clearly a failing of the software engineers. <laughs> Surely, it like, it would, assume t- it would assume Earl Grey and Hart unless he said otherwise. In fact, I you would have thought maybe, nowadays... Maybe it did. Maybe he just really, really liked saying... Earl Grey, hot. Yeah, it's I, see, maybe, I, maybe so that's I, his particular favorite I was led to believe that by the porn, time we're, you know, like by the time we're like where they are in the future, he it would just know, it'd like be able to sense from his body language and his pulse rate, and just it like his like oh, there's a twitchiness where he could really do it, and the, like it would just be there, like the tea would be mm. there, all smelling of bergamot, and <laughs> and the right temperature, and it would just be it was there, and then if he decided he didn't want it it could be zapped into something else because it's the future. Yeah, I mean, the, the being zapped into something else makes it uh, a lot more low cost. But w- when you're talking about features that are sort of very predictive of your behavior, mm-hmm. like if you are not 100% correct, it can actually be, you know, kind of obnoxious, right? Like Maybe. Maybe they did research in the back there and it's like, they, you know yeah. what, he, they don't feel in control. Like, it might be the trade-off, like, of constantly producing and destroying <laughs> Earl Grey tea hot Every time whenever, like, he gets a twitch in his eye. You know, maybe that's not a good trade-off, and, and, and you know, just having him ask for it is not that terrible a, a compromise. Maybe, maybe, it does, maybe it does seem impressive. Stop forcing tea on me. <laughs> well, it's like I call the same breakfast burrito place every morning, almost every morning, and I order almost the same thing every time. And after I order it, I, I, I call and order a carnitas burrito with white beans and a coffee and they say andy after i've ordered it <laughs> so i could just start with hey it's andy you know but yeah. i feel like a dick so maybe he's just being polite to the computer and or maybe just the ritual of it you don't want to just mm. call some like hey it's andy i'll be there in 10 minutes and they're like, right, here's your carnitas breakfast burrito and then mm. you don't cool one day and they're worried they have been worried like, i was gone for two weeks i just got back yesterday and uh, like was like, it something we did yeah <laughs> did you did you find a new breakfast burrito place so maybe Picard is just polite to his computer. Yeah, well, maybe. maybe that is something that they've learned. Maybe the way the the internet of things is going, it's going to start becoming too oppressive and they're going to have to dial back on it. Where people are like, you know what? I don't like that the fridge automatically orders replacement salad when I run out. I kind of want to choose whether or not I want the salad to come. 
like the lightest weight version of a Luddite in the future. Like you still want to do all the stuff for you, yeah. but you want to just say two more words. I want to press the button <laughs> and have the throne deliver my salad. It's like the slot machines where like you could pull the, you know, you don't need to pull the thing on the side. They'll leave it there for you yep. if you want to feel like you're doing something, but yeah. it's the same as the You just the need button. to press the button. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think I think that's an interesting point about the, the internet of things and kind of like where we're headed. I, 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 I it's, I mean, we were talking about earlier the, the, cell phone connected frying pan that like heats itself and stuff like that and, yeah. and it does make me wonder at some point like where exactly the line of usefulness falls right yeah you know i i mean i do have things hooked up in my house like lights and the thermostat and stuff like that but i mean do i really want my locks electronic like yeah that's cool they can automatically lock when i leave but that also means that you know anyone who can get on my network can also unlock my house and walk in not that I necessarily think there's a lot yeah. of people that does exist, that. and I, I've got a friend who has that. He has a, oh yeah, yeah, a, an app on his phone that can lock and unlock his front door. Yeah, and, and and I totally understand the usefulness of it. And I think right now it's not a big issue, but you know, I mean, who knows? You know, there is something to be said for just a big piece of wood that slides down into <laughs> a, <laughs> the medieval fortification. Yeah. yeah, like a big, big plank of wood that sits into a iron slot yeah and it doesn't matter how hard you run at that door it's not budging yeah well i mean it's particularly terrifying in things like cars um there is a a pair of gentlemen who i believe it was gm through gm's onstar they were able to actually hack into random people's cars i saw that and the journalist and, sort of yeah and so they they did a journalist test and he was going down the highway and they first started by turning his radio on to full volume, blaring like, you know, uh, metal music <laughs> through it, and then talking to him through his stereo and, you know, insulting him. And then they started doing things like making it so he couldn't shift out of second gear uh. and stuff that was actually kind of terrifying. Yeah, I was amazed they did that on the highway rather than a closed track because I read the article and it's like, you could have actually killed him. Like, if yeah. you'd fucked up or pressed the wrong button there, you could have just killed him. Yeah. And and that was even them just without malice, just getting it a bit wrong while demonstrating what someone <laughs> with malice could do. Yeah, and, and so on one hand, you know, it's nice to have all this, you know, interconnect all these interconnected devices and be able to do things like, oh, I forgot to close my garage door while I'm at you know Home Depot or whatever. I can yeah. just do that now. But on the other hand, you know, it, it does uh, it opens up some scary possibilities, right, you right. know. By the way, I meant to ask earlier when we first got into neural networks: yeah. uh, is this at, is it at all related to quantum computing, or is that a totally different beast? That's a that's a pretty different beast. Yeah. Um, although there are people who are working on you know uh, machine learning and AI algorithms for quantum computers, but um, truthfully, quantum computers are very awesome. But much like quantum physics, very spooky. Mm -hmm. uh, I am not super well versed on them. I yeah. can answer broad questions, but you know. Uh, they, they've kind of been largely separate so far. Yeah. You know? But it's, it seems like the similarity in my head that made me think that might be a relation is is that there's no kind of right answer to these things that neural networks are working on. Like, how do yeah. they decide among their many mm -hmm. possible answers eventually just to spit out the one that they spit out? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like this script that got written, it was one of a million scripts it could have written with that same input. Was it just random every time with the same weights applied to it? They just chose this one mm -hmm. output? Or 
you know what yeah for for the most part uh, assuming that like the initial state of the network is the same and given the same input it will output the same oh thing, right okay so um oh yeah i wonder if there is like a pseudo random element yeah so i i mean th- there are things you can do to add elements of randomness right and one of them is uh if you think about it like rather than starting like each neuron at in essence zero activation at the start mm-hmm. you can assign each neuron some random activation right and that might change things a bit um but you know largely if your input is sort of the same and your starting state is the same like the output that you get would be the same now if they change the input words into that script right like if they had changed rather than like takes a book off the bookshelf as like gets in a future car right right the script it would have output would probably have been completely different mm-hmm. um but they are still uh, i mean it's interesting because it's not always necessarily apparent what they're doing if you just look at like the input to the network and like the output mm-hmm. but they are very generally deterministic Okay. In that sense. And if you, uh, so as these algorithms get more and more data points, they, they get stronger, they get better. Mm -hmm. Can you, is there a way to ever, can a coder ever get a look at what that looks like, what that algorithm actually looks like? Is there Mm -hmm. code that is changing someone could analyze as the, as a thing analyzes a bigger data set? Yeah. It's actually one of the, the areas of, most interesting areas of uh, I think of research in them right now is there's a lot of work on like um, visualization tools of like trying to figure out exactly what it's doing mm-hmm. and so uh, for a lot of ones that do things like image recognition and or, or like image processing tasks you know uh, there's been a lot of work to sort of develop ways of visualizing what the the network is looking at what features it's interested in and that sort of thing has led directly to things like uh, Deep Dream, where you know it takes a photo and you know processes it. Are you guys familiar where, with that? Is that where it like looks for eyes and things? And yeah, like exactly. Eyes show up where there aren't exactly. eyes. Exactly. And... So what they're doing is like I don't you know, know what that is. What? Oh, there's you've probably seen the pictures people post it. Like you put in a picture of your face and tell it to be on the lookout for a certain kind of shape, and it'll accentuate that yeah. and find it where it isn't, and it looks like a psychedelic nightmare. Yeah, kind of. Oh, okay. So you know. What's like I was again? saying, when you, you train a network, it starts to look for certain features, right? And so if you like train a network to do facial recognition, it'll look for eyes. And um, sort of what Deep Dream does is it, it, it looks at a picture, for example, and when it sees something that looks vaguely like an eye, it you know, applies it backwards and says accentuate that feature so that you, know, you can visualize it looking like an eye. Okay. Oh, I, I saw that picture. Here, uh, yeah, here's a picture. So it sort of looks... <laughs> Terrifying, yeah. Yeah, it does look something psychedelic slash... There's a picture of Trump where it's trying to find... Um, are those eyes or it's trying to find birds? I think it's trying to find uh, animal faces in Donald Trump's face in this one. So he looks a bit like an owl and there's like parrots in the background. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dogs playing poker with extra eyes. Okay, yeah, we'll link to this also over on... <laughs> excuse me, on probablyscience.com or you can just Google Deep Dream and click uh, image search. Yeah, there's Angela Merkel. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Looking kind of fractally. Or oh, what's that in the big background? Is that babies or animals again? Um, oh. Let's see. There's let's actually see. some really interesting videos also. If you search for videos of Deep Dream of like people zooming into things and kind of getting a neat fractal effect of yeah, constantly more things developing. 
So that's kind of a way, uh, you could say, of, of visualizing like a, a halfway point of these neural networks as they're breaking down. Yeah, it gives you an idea of kind of what they're looking at and what they're like sort of thinking something might be, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you see, you know, an eye that's randomly placed on like Van Gogh's ear or whatever, right? You know, you can say, okay, the network thinks that this looks kind of eye-like, but maybe not specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also been a lot of interesting research into exactly how they fail, Right. And uh, one way that they do is they, like, take a picture. They train a network to recognize an image of, like, a bus, right? And so you can show a bunch of pictures and says, this is a bus, this is not a bus, right? And usually it performs pretty well. So what some people started doing was basically altering a picture one pixel at a time and continue altering it to the point where the network said, nope, that's not a bus. Mm -hmm. But, like, if you looked at it, you'd be like... I don't know what you're talking about. That's a fucking bus, right? Like, it's obvious. Like, it's not even like it's blurry or fuzzy or anything. Um, So a lot of times these networks, you know, tend to, you know, they they, they fail in ways that are not necessarily intuitive. Yeah. And another interesting, you know, uh, way they fail is like sometimes, there's another example of the bus, like the researchers kind of went the opposite direction and they started showing like abstract shapes to the network and they looked at the output and basically as the output, the network said, I think this is more of a bus. I think this is more of a bus. Uh, they just sort of like added simple shapes and stuff like that. And so they ended up coming up with this incredibly great abstract picture <laughs> that was like zigzagging, alternating black and yellow lines and like a couple of like black circles randomly placed around the photo that the network was like, yeah, man, that's totally a bus. 100% bus. 100% bus. <laughs> so it's just like, it was sort of converging on bus as far as the computer was concerned. Yeah. And it's like, all right, all right, all right, yeah, yeah. no, we're, we're close enough now. It's got black and white stripes and it's got wheels. Like, it's a bus, totally. That's awesome. So you, then you can, from that, you can then sort of start to extrapolate what it thinks a bus is or what it thinks what it thinks the what it thinks the most bus like property is of an image yeah exactly what is like, busness you, you can <laughs> like it's none it's, of your busness i'll tell you that <laughs> hey come on <laughs> uh yeah no it's really interesting because it, it shows you what features you know it's looking for in the network in the network um or in the picture uh so clearly like in that instance you know the the it's looking for the color yellow. It's looking for the color black. It's looking for, you know, an edge between like a, a, a yeah, relatively straight edge between black and yellow. And it's looking for blackish circles, which mm-hmm. you can kind of see. All right. Like it's looking for wheels and, and the, that's the color of a bus. Right. Uh, but clearly it's misrecognizing things. It's really interesting because of the, because of the way the, the program has effectively evolved, you can't just look at the code and go, you can't, you can't get it to tell you this is what I think a bus is. You have to make it show you. Yeah. And and that's one of the reasons why I think that that sort of area is one of the most interesting areas of research is trying to analyze, you know, what these networks are doing, how they're learning, what they're learning. And it kind of goes back to this sort of like, you know, using them to discover hidden structure and things that we might not be aware of, like, you know, mm-hmm. hidden structure of words and concepts. Like things we just take for granted and how we parse the yeah. world around us, but dictates all that we decide things are. Yeah. 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 Cool. So is there a drive? Is there still a drive in com- computation? Now there's so much power, computing power mm. to make it as efficient, the algorithms as efficient and streamlined as possible. Or is that? Oh, absolutely. Um, these neural networks, they, uh, they're still very expensive to train. Okay. Very, very expensive. Like, you know, even if you have access to tons of computers, I mean, it takes 
days or weeks to train some of these models up with a, a you know a reasonable amount of data. I'm picturing like that scene from Short Circuit where he's just flipping through pages really quickly. Is that yeah, what's no, happening? It's kind of, it's basically, um, you know, it's interesting. One of the you know, so turns out that video games are directly uh, contributing to the robot apocalypse. <laughs> in that, uh, you're the math- they're making everyone too dumb to see it's happening, man. <laughs> no, no, kind of, kind of the opposite. So, you know, it's interesting. The math that's involved in neural networks is frequently, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of matrix operations, and because they're composed of all these individual nodes that represent neurons. Um, each one of those, you know, the computation that it has to do is completely local to it, right? So uh, within like a layer or whatever, like this node, like one node doesn't care what another node is doing, which means it's very, very uh, good. Like if you are able to paralyze it, you can calculate those two simultaneously, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't have to wait for one of them to finish for the other one to, to do. Okay. So it turns out that Matrix operations and highly parallelizable are also the exact same thing that are required for high-end graphics programming. And so the game industry has been, well, not the game industry, but the hardware industry, you know, has been developing these high-end graphics cards for 20 years now to do great graphics on computer games. And they are good at the exact same type of math that neural networks are. So one of the things that has really helped accelerate them and something that we wouldn't have been able to do necessarily is that we can take this hardware that has been previously specialized to video games and run the neural networks on them. And now we're getting to the point where like NVIDIA and uh, other hardware companies are starting to release versions of their video cards that are specifically designed to you know do this you know uh neural network computations on okay nice and you still don't think that we're as close to the singularity as like uh kurtzweil says or anything or i mean i don't know that that's uh... yeah that's that's (laughs) that's a difficult question um i probably think uh, yeah, I, I don't think we're quite as close to see things i don't think we're also super far away either right like uh, I would not be surprised if, you know, we live to see it in our lifetimes, but I would expect it to sort of be on the, the far end of it. So you think you're not going to live forever? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Depends on how good things like, you know, the telomerase extension and, you know, the, what is it, the NSAID or whatever the new anti-aging chemicals are and stuff like that. we had uh, when we had rick rosner on he he does a lot he takes a lot of uh he takes the thing that's a diabetic drug that yeah. um mm-hmm. slows what's it called I can't the one thing he said in his book that he didn't say on the podcast which i think is good advice if you want to live longer is floss oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. one of the smallest things you can do that can make a notable yeah uh proven increase your life expectancy yeah um because gum disease can cause heart disease yeah, yeah. He also, this is a good segue into the next thing we want to talk about, I think, because his theories about the informational, uh, the the universe as an information processing system didn't mm-hmm. really make sense to me. And we talked about similar stuff when we were here over Thanksgiving. And isn't that related to the Maxwell's demon thought experiment or not exactly? Yeah. So, well, I mean, for those of you who 
I mean, I assume many of your uh, learned podcast <laughs> listeners are familiar with the Maxwell's Demon Thought Experiment. And by the way, fantastic I, segue. I, yeah. I was hoping it was related because I don't quite, I, I <laughs> forgot what the thought experiment is and I don't understand the informational theory either. So uh, let's, and, let's and he's obviously listeners. playing dumb. We know. We know. We've got this all. But we just choose, pretend we're proxies for the idiots who listen to this, <laughs> even though we we know, you know everything. We're just like we, those we, real dum-dums out there with the iPods. <laughs> no, they got like second-gen iPods and listening Actually, to Actually, I've been super impressed with your guys' guests. I've been listening to the I, or the uh, podcast a lot oh, recently. You. Like, it's, it's, it's actually, I'm, I'm really impressed and uh, really kind of honored and slightly nervous to be nah. here. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, so... There is a lot of interesting overlap between uh, information theory and physics, and one of the sort of key points is you know Maxwell's demon, which is a thought experiment about thermodynamics and specifically violating the second law of thermodynamics, which says that you know the universe is headed to heat death, right? Like we move from order to entropy, and uh, the the idea of the Maxwell's demon is that there's you know like a chamber and in this chamber there's a, a divider with a trap door and there's some demon sitting there in the middle and this demon can see individual molecules and it sees like a molecule that's really really excited it's got a high temperature coming towards it and it opens up the trap door and it lets it through and then it sees like a colder molecule coming and it closes the trap door and if it does this repeatedly, eventually you start to build up a lot of hot, you know, high energy molecules on one side and a lot of colder ones on the other side. And so this creates potential energy. It reduces the entropy in the system, which is a violation of the second law of thermodynamics, which says that you know, closed systems move from order to chaos, not the other way around. Uh, and this, this thought experiment has been around since the 1800s right. and it's creating energy from nothing seemingly like this energy is being produced this potential energy hasn't come from another type of energy exactly and uh, or, or if it has that energy is just the decision that it makes sort of at that boundary right or so there, there's it, actually there's been a lot of theories through the years right and one of the most common one was that it actually had to expend energy to determine the state of the molecules headed towards it right and so for a long time, that was kind of considered the uh, way of banishing Maxwell's right. demon. Right. So, so that's the resolution to what would otherwise be a paradox. Right, exactly. Uh, but interestingly, so there's a concept of informational entropy, right? So let's say that I, you know, I have four cards, mm -hmm. right? One's green, one's blue, one's red, one's gray. And you have the same four cards. And I want you to select the same card that I'm, you know, holding up. Now, assuming they're all equally probable, you know, you could say there's a one in four chance of, you know, me selecting a given card, mm -hmm. right? And uh, since there's only four possible states and it's equal, you can say you're at like maximum entropy, right? Like you have no idea what, what the possible state of my card is mm -hmm. if you can't see it. Now, if I try to pass a message to you to tell you what I have, I could pass that message by spelling out the color of the car card, right? So I could say, start with B. And if I tell you B, like, you know that I have a blue card, right? Right. right. So that immediately brings that state to zero entropy, right? Because there's no 
you know, you know exactly what I have. There's no, you know, randomness or chance that it could be anything else. Um, but if I say G, then it could be that I'm holding green or gray, which means the entropy has been reduced, but there still is some. And the information exchange is the same as in the previous example. Well, no, actually I've only given you, I've given you less information. Well, I thought you were just going to say, but the actual, like the bit sort of, of the the quantity of information was kind of, yes, the, the, the number of symbols I have sent you is the same. But the actual amount of information I have told you is less, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't determine the state. And then if I say R, right? There's no change. Exactly. So there's no change in entropy. There's no information exchanged as part of that, you know, communication, right? Same thing with Wait, the Why next... would R not be a green, gray? Because you oh, already... are. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. I thought you meant R as oh. a red, as a new one. Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm talking about the communication yeah, yeah. sequence. Same thing with the next E. Right, and then it comes into if you're the, British. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suppose if it's A, then then you would know. Um, so there's this concept of entropy, right? And, and so that's kind of what information entropy is. And it turns out the formula for it, uh, calculating it, is very very similar to the formula that's used to calculate thermodynamic entropy in systems. And this allowed people to, you know basically recognize the interconnectedness of that. And uh, there's a lot of research into that and basically how you embed information on physical systems and how the entropy of those physical systems interact with the information that's stored. And so there's a, a very famous sort of maxim that as entropy increases, information you know is destroyed, basically. Uh, because... You know, the the more random a system is, the more entropy it has, the less information you, you you know, the well, in theory, the more information you need to represent it, so the less information you have. Oh, okay, okay. Um, How, does that change anything about the res- resolution of that Maxwell's demon paradox then? Or? I'm, I'm getting there. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay. This is a very long okay. and incomplete no, no, way to, to talk about it. Um, so then a researcher... Uh, I believe at IBM in the 60s, uh, Landauer, Landauer, uh, you know, formulated that, or posited, he, he started another thought experiment, right? Like, let's say that you've got, you know, a, a bit, right? And it's represented by some amount of energy. And it says that, like, you know, at rest, it's at the bottom of a hill, right? So that's zero. And at the top of a hill, it's at one. Now, if you have this... Uh, basically logical translation or a logical operation reset to one. Imagine it like always moves that, that, uh, you know, whatever the rock or whatever you're representing is the bit up to the top of the hill. And so if the rock, after you go through and do that operation, right, the rock is at the top of the hill, but you actually don't know where it started. Right. Uh, so you don't know necessarily whether you had to expend energy to get up there or not. So in essence, you've gone uh, from a state of higher entropy, where it could have been up or down, to a state of lower entropy, where you know that it is at the top. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. And he basically showed that that requires you – well, I mean – that requ- that basically gives off heat, which requires you to input energy. And so what he was actually trying to do 
was figure out the minimum amount of energy that was necessary to perform a calculation. And by going through this, he showed that if you can reverse an operation, a logical operation, you don't actually expend any energy making that operation. But if you can't reverse that operation, right? Like if you go from the state where you've got, it could be at the bottom of the hill or the top of the hill to the top of the hill, you do have to expend energy, which is completely unintuitive, I'm sure. So what's an example of a reversible calculation versus an irreversible calculation? Um, so a reversible calculation XOR, I believe, is a, a logical reversible calculation. But the one that's commonly quoted is one that basically takes three inputs and has three outputs. And uh, no matter what, like based on the state of the three outputs, you can determine the state of the three inputs, right? So um, the I, w- I would have to actually look up what the specific logic operation. But just so, so some of the basic logic. Yeah. So like you have an AND gate, like, right? Yeah, like yeah. like an AND operation is a destructive operation. Which is like it sends a one only if both things are one if. If right. Either or both are a zero, it's a zero. Right. So if you have a one at the end at the output of yeah. that AND gate, you so just know, to, just you to backtrack, know. just because Yeah, sorry, I should have yeah. yeah, so so these these are operations that you have two inputs, each of those inputs is either a one or a zero. Right. And the AND gate gives you a single output and it gives it a court the, the AND gate output is if both the inputs are one, you get a one. But if either of the inputs are zero, then you get a zero. Either right. It's only if this and this, in yes. either case, it's a zero. Versus an or gate where it would be if this one or this one is a one, then the output is a one. Right. And then from that, you can draw a little table that shows the two inputs and the potential outputs. Right, exactly. And so if you just have one on the output, then yes, you can, you can do a reversal operation. You know that both of them are one. Mm-hmm. But if that's zero, you don't know what the input state was, right? It could be that the first input was one and the second one was zero. It could be that the second one was one and the first one was zero. Or it could be that, you know, both, both were zero. zero. But if you were to save some information that allows you to uh, backtrack and reverse that operation, then the energy used, you know, the, the sort of output by that would allow you, it would basically be the same as the amount that you put in. And so none of it would be sent off as heat okay. into the thermodynamic system, right? So, uh, like, let's say that you have – oh, man, I should really look this up now. <laughs> but um, I'm trying to remember the, 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 the specific gate. Uh, so it takes, you know, an input, which is normally, I believe, one, and then A and B as the three inputs, right? And then it has three outputs, one of which is uh, – a and B. The other one is like not A and B. And I want to say the other one is like B or maybe it's one. But anyway, so the the, say, the the key point is the same number of ones, like the same number of ones that come in on the input mm-hmm. are output on the output side. So you've got three inputs and three outputs. Uh, and you know, one of those will be A and B, right? So you can still perform the logic operation, but you can also go backwards and figure out the inputs from the outputs. 
And so what was shown is that if you're in that situation, if you have a reversible, uh, a reversible operation, mm -hmm. then you can actually not expend any energy when you do that. And there's actually, so in the 80s, there was a paper by Fredkin and Trifoli that kind of demonstrated a series of actual logic gates that could operate in a completely reversible way. Uh, and they, they kind of uh, described it as like billiard balls, right? Like, so you have billiard balls rolling and ricocheting off each other, and they had kind of like diagrams of different pipes that, you know, they could go out of. And as long as you were in a frictionless, completely elastic environment, uh, the billiard balls would never lose any energy, even though they are performing computation. So the interesting thing is that it, it, the current, or one of the current major theories is that the solution to Maxwell's problem is not, or Maxwell's demon's problem is not that he's getting information and spending energy doing that, but is actually the, the erasure of information. Right, like once he is done with that information, if he can store it in, for an infinite amount of time, then he—it's true—he's not. But that would require an infinite amount of space to store stuff in, which is obviously not feasible. Right. Right. And so, at some point, you know, he gets to the point where he's filled up all the memory he has, and he has to start overwriting some of that memory, and that's where you actually start to lose power. So this is all like sort of like a, a long way of saying that. You know, the, the computation and information, uh, information and uh, physics and thermodynamics are all very strongly linked, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, I, I don't know the particular theory that you're talking about. I don't really either. And I listened <laughs> back to the episode, but um, it doesn't mean it's not valid. I just like couldn't wrap my head around like a, an intuitive model yeah. of it or like a... But yeah, in essence, you know, uh, all physical systems are capable of computation and they have a limit of the amount of computation they can do based on the amount of entropy they have, right? Um, and so, you know, if you have the view of, like, everything is a computational system, that's that's probably not necessarily an incorrect, you it's know... It's not incorrect. I, well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it could be correct. It could not be incorrect. I, I, I honestly have no idea. But but it is certainly one way of viewing it. Yeah, okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah, is, I wonder if anybody's made, like, a cool... I should have Googled this beforehand. Um, like, a visualization of... Uh, Maxwell's demon. Oh yeah, there, there's plenty of them online. You oh can really? Them. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's other similar ones like uh, there the, are similar thought experiments about getting energy from nothing, like uh, Feynman's ratchet and stuff like that. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know. Like I, I'm really, I, I really love all these thought experiments about the second law of thermodynamics and basically how to get energy for nothing, because a lot of the solutions to them are, are really kind of cool and, and non-intuitive. Mm -hmm. And also, that's the law of thermodynamics that proves that evolution is impossible, and we are all created by a benevolent lord. So, which one is? Sure, I'll go with that. No problem. <laughs> that's one of the things that gets constantly misquoted. Oh, why would we? We seem like we're pretty highly organized and not uh, yeah, chaotic. Why would we? That's exactly reformed? that. It's like um, they always leave out the bit of the the bit at the beginning that says in a closed system. Yeah. Uh, so they go like, well, science says things always go from uh, order to chaos. So how can we go from random molecules to complex humans and animals? Right missing out the fact that we are not a closed system there's energy coming from outside right exactly and when i talk about like that computation i'm talking about in a, a thoroughly enclosed system right like a computer that has its own power supply etc um like clearly that 
some energy has to come from outside to build that computer and set initial states and stuff like that. And it's similar to the earth where you've got sunlight coming in to the earth, providing energy, which is then used to organize matter in a more structured manner. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you know, do you know or remember what Feynman's ratchet is? Is that because that was the one you just mentioned, or yeah? So that, that this is a, another thought experiment. It, it's less related to information in computation in general, but is more related to just kind of like general, you know, impossible, um, uh, you know, eternal machines. Uh, so basically, it's imagine you've got basically like a little water wheel connected to a gear and then the gear has a, a ratcheting arm that basically only allows it to advance in one direction uh -huh. and uh, all of this is small enough that you know uh, a, a single molecule hitting the water wheel paddle is enough to you know turn it a little bit and so the theory is that this will like you basically put that water wheel just in the middle of like a warm you know uh, water bath or gaseous bath or whatever and the random brownian motion of molecules hitting the water wheel will cause it to turn forward right but then when the molecules hit on the other side it can't turn backwards because it's got the ratcheting uh, right. arm on it and uh that one like uh, you know his uh, analysis of that is much more of a mechanical one like talking about how at those levels and the angle of the arm and stuff like that there's a good chance that uh like if you have one molecule that that like sort of moves it forward like just as it hits the point where the arm has released and it's about to click to the next one like it's possible for molecules to come and hit it the other direction for it to jump backwards right and so even in the end it still ends up being basically a random motion back and forth right and there there's enough that it doesn't actually do any noticeable amount of work okay all right uh we should probably wrap things up because yeah, we've yeah. been we've been stealing our time for well <laughs> yeah. over an hour and i was late even though i knew where todd glass lived i still showed up uh... <laughs> um do you what can we where should our listeners go if they wanted to find out more about you and your stuff or would you rather send them in another direction <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a, a large, like I am, I am ironically a Luddite, like when it comes <laughs> to like online social media and things like that. But, uh, clearly I should get a Twitter account. And, uh, when I do, I will totally post it on probably science.com or uh, tell you guys. And, uh, can listeners find you uh, if you want to be found? Because we, I've had listeners <laughs> find me at Burning Man, uh, when I mentioned the name of my camp and the location of it. Are you going to oh, be back this year? Do you want any? I'm, I'm not actually going back this year, oh, but, okay. um, well, maybe we'll see. Uh, but no, I, I, I normally camp it. Uh, I'm not sure if I should really no, tell us. You don't have to. You don't no, have to. Well, no, it's, it's like... not so much that I'm worried about people finding me. It's just that, like, you know, I'm not sure people really want to come to my camp. I mean, we do have a bad <laughs> tendency of branding people there. So, and Literally also shoving, ha you know, jalapenos up people's asses. Oh, okay, okay. Jalapeno fisting. A strong <laughs> Giggsville tradition. <laughs> And uh, and once they're in, they can't come back out. I'm guessing. So is it kind of like is it a five no, minute situation? It is not an irreversible logic okay, operation. Irreversible... It is a definitely a reversible operation Excellent. logic. Therefore, it requires no energy. <laughs> no I'm not energy. sure I put logic in that sentence. <laughs> uh, 
and and also I guess if they want to find out more about your company's work, they could go to google.com <laughs> Bing. And Bing Google. Bing Google. Yeah. Bing, Bing the word Google and it'll, it'll take the Alphabet Inc. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, John well, Eric thank Hoffman. you so much. Oh, we got some people to thank. Do we have do you have the- Oh I don't have a list, you know, I haven't even guys, thank you for donating. I've been so busy with Bridgetown wrap up well, stuff, I haven't gone through. We have a lot of donors to thank. We'll do that for next episode. Yes, we do not uh, we're not forgetting you. We really appreciate it. Oh thank you everyone support. who came to the live show at Bridgetown as well. Yeah, that was really there fun. was some we saw some probably science t shirts there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we should have had some on hand to sell. It's just been it's been a crazy couple of weeks. And we're I'm very sorry bad at that. We're very bad at that. But we do really appreciate you. We appreciate all the donors. We appreciate everyone who uses the Amazon affiliate link if they're shopping at Amazon. Mm-hmm. And we appreciate John Eric Hoffman for joining us right now. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Yeah, thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. All right. We're in the backyard a couple hours after recording the episode. We got uh, some delicious steaks, courtesy of this week's guest, John Eric Hoffman, and a couple drinks. And then it turns out we dropped the ball by not doing the old Brooks Wheelan-inspired <laughs> science uh, pop quiz. What did we call it? I forgot what we even called it. The I remember you, you asked, like, favorite scientist, right? Like, favorite experiment. Uh, uh, favorite Australian animal, maybe used to be one of them. Oh God! I, 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 it's a really cute one. The wombat? No, koala. not a wombat. Not a koala. It's a capybara. Oh yeah, those are big. Those are like the biggest yeah, rodents. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole, this whole internet uh, thing around animals riding capybaras. Nice, nice. Yeah. But uh, the more importantly, you you wished we'd brought up favorite experiment. Oh yeah, yeah. So I uh, I had heard those those episodes, and I was like. Thinking about it, um, and when I was in college, you know, we, we had to take this class called Research Methods in, in Psychology, and, and as part of that, we had to design an experiment. And ours, as this, like, little undergrad experiment, got shut down for potential ethical violations, where we, uh, the whole plan for the, the experiment was to induce a state of stress in people, mm-hmm. and, you know, like, have them perform a task, and we wanted to study how, like, Stress, uh, or you know, how being stressed impacted their uh, performance on this task. So the task was to like just classify cartoon faces, and very early on, like it was very simple. It's like, do they have like big eyes or small eyes? And people would try different things and eventually get it. But like the plan was, we'd eventually make it more and more complex, like the set of features you'd have to determine. Yeah. To in A or B, to the point where they couldn't do it like it was just too much like information for the brain to keep current and even if they could do it we cheated so if they managed to get like 10 right in a row we would just say the 10th one was wrong even if they were absolutely right (laughs) and you could like you could skip a task so like if something was too difficult you could just skip it and move on and the whole point was to basically get people frustrated get them to skip a couple of rounds and then move on to simpler ones to see how they performed compared to the original simple ones. Okay. The problem is, people wouldn't skip. And, like, we had people who would literally sit there for an hour and a half on one round trying to figure out this classification. And, you know, just, like, like some of them were seriously <laughs> brought to tears about it, that they could not figure this out. And then we had other friends who, despite the fact that it should not be humanly possible, clearly figured out the pattern, because we looked at, you know, the data, and it was like... 
nine right and then one wrong, where they actually got it right, but we failed them, and uh-huh. then they'd get nine more right in a row and then one wrong. And so eventually our professor was like, listen, guys, you should just take the data you have now and, and cut it before anyone else, like, leaves your experiment in tears. Like it's an ethics violation. Well, I, I mean, almost. like, almost, right? Like, it was clearly... We, it was going too far, you know? Yeah, like, like people that's were getting I, too frustrated. That's the most interesting data point I want to get is how... Like when? When would they? Yeah. Like how long will they keep going? Could you well, have it going five hours? It's- I, I mean, I, I kind of honestly, I, I kind of blame this on Carnegie Mellon, right? Like the, the attitude there is very much. It is, it is a, a very competitive school, and uh, like there's kind of there's also a lot of really freaking smart people who go there, right? Yeah. And who are very used to being able to figure stuff out. So I think there's a lot of just like, no, really, I can do this, right. like, like. I can get this. What's wrong with me? Sort of thing. I'm not broken. Yeah. Therefore, I must continue. My favorite were the people who did like reach that point where they were getting like nine right and one wrong. Uh, usually, you debrief people after the experiment and like, yeah. you tell them like exactly what's going on. And uh, I had one friend who, who reached that point, and uh, when we told him exactly what's going on, I was like, "Oh, thank God!" Like I thought I was going crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like. I would have done the same thing. Yeah, I wouldn't have quit. I would have been so mad at that test. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was one of my favorite. Ex- I mean, there's a lot of really cool psychology experiments, but that was my favorite because I got to be a part of it, and it went horribly, horribly wrong. It was like the closest you can get to being. Is it Milgram? Who's the guy that yep, made it? Yeah, the yeah. Stanford Prison Experiment. Oh no, that was Zimbardo, right? What's the? I'm thinking of the one where you you think oh, no, you're shocking someone one. to yeah, death. No, you're is absolutely that, correct. I don't know the, which one that is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. For the little bonus content there, guys, uh, and we'll see you next week.